This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. The master, 38-year-old Krishnaventa, stepped out of his car and surveyed the land that was to become his kingdom, Box Canyon. His long hair and bristly beard fluttered in the wind, whipping past his yellow pastel robe. Standing in front of the setting sun, his tall frame cut a daunting figure. He walked across the ground, feeling the cool earth beneath his bare feet, He was only 30 miles from downtown Los Angeles, yet he felt like worlds away. The ground was parched, but the oaks were large and healthy. It was quiet. It was secluded. It was perfect. By 1949, Krishnaventa had already been all over the world. His whole life, he had been searching for a place of his own creation, a place where he belonged. This would be the place the fertile valley where he and hundreds of his followers could spread his message. They would have to work hard. Time was of the essence. He needed to amass 144,000 followers to fulfill his prophecy. In the valley, his new community could forge sustainable lives. They must. The apocalypse was coming. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Cults for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. 
This week, we're taking a deep dive into Krishna Venta and his authoritarian New Age religious organization, The Fountain of the World. We'll investigate Venta's troubled start and how he eventually settled in a secluded canyon near Los Angeles with his followers to prepare for the apocalypse. Next week, we'll see how the organization operated out of the canyon and built a cooperative community with the locals. But their work came at a cost. As Venta grew more powerful, he started to exploit his followers until the cult came to an explosive end. Krishna Venta was born Francis Heinzwater Pankovic in San Francisco, California, on March 29, 1911. His father, Albert, was a poor young immigrant, and his mother was a housewife. They did their best, but found it impossible to support their son. Three months after he was born, they left Francis at an orphanage, leaving him with lifelong feelings of abandonment. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. A childhood's sense of abandonment can lead to lasting negative effects. According to Dr. Claudia Black, an expert in social psychology, living with repeated abandonment experiences creates toxic shame. Shame arises from the painful message implied in abandonment, you are not important, you are not of value. After he was abandoned by his parents, Francis was adopted by two rural farmers, Maggie and Nelphi Jessen. They gave him their last name and moved him to the small town of Lamoille in northern Nevada. The Jessens owned a farm where they made a meager living. They embraced Francis, who they called Frank, wholeheartedly, as he was their only child. But life was tough in Lamoille. It was a very small town of less than a hundred people, bitterly cold in the winter and brutally hot in the summer. It was also isolated from much of the outside world. In the next town over, Alco, mail had to be delivered by airplane because it took too much time to deliver by foot. At first, young Frank adjusted well to his new life in Nevada, but it wasn't long before tragedy struck again. His adopted father, Nelphi Jessen, died in August of 1913, when Frank was only two. Afterward, his adopted mother, Maggie Jessen, forged ahead with the farm, where Frank learned what it took to live an agrarian life. He grew to be comfortable outside and enjoyed nature. In his youth, he took trips to nearby Utah and occasionally visited Idaho. He liked traveling and often felt restless in Lamoille. By 1927, 16-year-old Frank was a sophomore at Elko High School. With barely over 100 students, it had a strong sense of community. There were also plenty of extracurricular activities, despite the size. Frank tried to fit in the best he could and became a member of the school's popular glee club. Most students at the high school came from poor, working-class families like Frank. There wasn't much industry in Elko, and residents either worked in the local gold mines or on family farms. It was common for students to simply move away midway through the year, as families often tired of the hard life in the mines and left. No records exist that confirm Frank graduated from Elko High School, 
Like so many of his classmates who left town, his picture disappeared from the yearbooks after his sophomore year. Shortly after he left high school, Frank, who was still going by his adopted surname, Jessen, claimed to have made contact with his biological mother. He found out that she lived in Idaho, just a few short hours from Lamoille. In the spring of 1929, Frank headed north to visit her. We don't know much about their encounter, but shortly after they met for the first time, he moved into her house. Unfortunately, he didn't stay long. It may have been that his mother didn't live up to Frank's expectations, or that she grew tired of their arrangement. But within a few months of moving to Idaho, he was gone again. This may have reignited his childhood feelings of abandonment. According to psychologist Audrey Sherman, author of Dysfunction Interrupted, when actually abandoned, the idea or core belief is established in the child of being unlovable or wanted. Sherman wrote that adults who grow up feeling abandoned may suffer from abusive relationships, chaotic lifestyles, and borderline personality disorders. Soon after he left his mother's house, Frank's life certainly became much more chaotic. On October 24, 1929, the United States, as well as the rest of the world, plunged into the Great Depression. It was hard for Frank to find steady work. Instead, Frank continued to seek out a relationship with his biological family. In 1930, 19-year-old Frank returned to San Francisco, where he was born, in a desperate search for his father. This may have been Frank's last-ditch effort to ease his sense of abandonment and find some closure with his family. At first, it seemed like he'd succeeded. Shortly after arriving in San Francisco, he made contact with his father's family. Frank hoped this would be the beginning of something great. He may have seen his father's family as the gatekeepers to a better life. He likely always wondered who his father was, where he worked, and if they were alike. Unfortunately for Frank, he would never find the answers to his questions. The paternal side of his family blocked his efforts to reach out to his father. Their reasons were unclear, but Frank's father may not have wanted to see his son avoiding the difficult decision he'd made 19 years before. It's also possible the family believed Frank's father would not live up to his son's expectations. Albert Penkovic was living in the city a short distance away, working as a grocery store clerk, and yet never sought out his son. Frank had come so close to his goal, but was forced to leave empty-handed. This latest rejection left Frank untethered. He had placed his hopes in his father, and he had been let down for the second time. Afterward, he began drifting around the country, vowing never to make the same mistake again. He would never place his hope in another person's hands. Like many people affected by the Great Depression, Frank hitched rides all over the country wherever he thought he could find work. But by late 1930, the effects of the Depression were felt in every community in the United States. Work was hard to come by, and food was never a guarantee. Even so, Frank found autonomy within the flux of vagabonds. While traveling, he read voraciously about religion and philosophy. Within the first few months of drifting, he found himself in El Paso, Texas, without any money or real goal. Late one afternoon, he and another young man, Gio Hull, went to Camp Grande, 
a large motel meant for tourists on the outskirts of town. It was a hub for anyone traveling through the city. There were several shops and plenty of places to stay for those who were weary from the road. Frank and Hull walked around the motel, looking for a mark. As it was beginning to get dark, they found what they were looking for, an empty room. The duo broke in, stole enough luggage to fill three large bags, and took off into the night. After they made it back to their own rooms across town, they took stock of what they stole. Their jaws dropped. They had taken goods worth at least $250, more than enough to ease their money troubles. However, their jubilation didn't last long. They might have made it out of the motel unnoticed, but two poor young men carrying three large bags across town had drawn attention. Early the next morning, two detectives came knocking. Both Geo Hull and Frank Jessen were arrested. The subsequent trial was quick, and they were sentenced to three months in jail for theft. Frank served his time, and was released in late December of 1930. Then, the 19-year-old was back on the streets. It quickly became apparent that he was just as aimless as he had been before his incarceration. Even if he wanted to get on the straight and narrow, the effects of the Depression made it difficult. Nearly a quarter of the population was without work, and even those with a job were seeing their hours cut. It was a trying time for almost everyone, and as a young man with nothing anchoring him to a normal life, it was even more challenging. Frank left Texas behind and headed west to Los Angeles in early 1931. He spent at least two years ambling around the Southland, but he didn't manage to stay out of trouble long. In 1932, at the age of 21, he was arrested in Los Angeles for petty theft. His criminal cycle continued. He was later charged with breaking numerous vagrancy laws and knowingly passing bad checks. Frank faced even more severe charges in 1935. While in Florida, 24-year-old Frank was charged with violating the Mann Act. The law made it illegal for anyone to transport a woman across state lines for what the government called immoral behavior. It was the gravest crime Frank had faced up until that point. He could be sentenced to several years in prison. When the charges were eventually dropped, Frank got out of Florida as fast as he could. His latest near-miss with the law made him more determined than ever to skirt society and traditional ways of living. However, he realized his current path was not the way to get what he wanted. He had been arrested seven different times, and his criminal record made it a hard cycle to break out of. By now he had moved around so much, he couldn't rely on anyone other than himself. Frank took a hard look at his situation. He knew he was smart, but more importantly, he knew he was clever. He had met countless different people from all walks of life, and he'd learned how to talk to them. He also found they were all seeking answers during such a difficult time. He felt he could reach these people, but not as Frank Jessen, who had a marked record. On the other hand, Francis Penkovic, his birth name, was clean. He had reached a crossroads. He had to choose who he wanted to become. Frank disappeared for over two years after leaving Florida. He continued to travel all over the country, laying low, reading, and evolving. 
when he resurfaced in 1936, he was a completely new man. Up next, the rebirth of Francis Pankovic. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In 1936, a mysterious man started giving lectures all over the Midwest. Claiming to be a doctor with 15 different degrees in philosophy, he stated he was born in Russia in 1893, but had immigrated to the United States when he was only three. He also claimed he spent three years living in India, studying the ways of the Far East. His name was Dr. F.H. Penkovic. He spoke like a learned scholar, but he presented himself like a showman. He was interesting. He was unique. He knew how to draw a crowd. Of course, none of his self-proclaimed accolades were true. The man was really 26-year-old Francis Pankovic, formerly Frank Jessen, a petty thief who spent the last six years wandering all over the United States. Pankovic had emerged from his time on the road as a completely new man, calling himself a scholar of thought and science. With a past that was difficult to trace, he could be whoever he wanted to be and his lies only mounted as time went on. While it may seem a more difficult task to keep up with a large number of lies, neuroscientist Tali Sherratt at the University College London found that, over time, it actually becomes easier to lie. Sherratt conducted an experiment that showed the brain becomes used to the emotional stress of lying. She told National Geographic... Engaging in small acts of deception can lead to bigger acts of deception. The new Pankovic undoubtedly took advantage of that fact. As a self-proclaimed doctor, he went from town to town handing out flyers and giving free lectures. His goal was to hook attendees in so they would come back for subsequent paid lectures that expanded on his philosophy. He often ran ads in local newspapers, typically in the religious section, One said, learn how to face the reality of confusion and unsteadiness. Be able to guide your ship safely through the storm. He normally presented his lectures in churches and community centers. During the Great Depression, there was a decline in Protestant Christianity. This gave way to a newer form of thought, according to Robert T. Hardy of Union Theological Seminary. Hardy said, As the decade wore on, scientism, behaviorism, and humanism became more conspicuous in the thought of the time. Religion was often viewed with a negative, if not with a hostile, eye. Pankovic's teachings were more in line with this new wave of religious thinking. While he predominantly focused on Christian ideals, he combined these with psychology to sell hope in desperate times, promising to help change people's lives. One of his advertisements read, What is the law of happiness, and how can it be obtained? However, he was just as likely to talk about war, politics, and spirituality as he was about inner happiness. He discussed Nazi activities in Mexico, where he said he had lectured extensively. 
He never stuck close to one topic for long, instead pinballing around, hitting just enough on one idea to leave the audience confused, yet stimulated by his apparent worldliness. He preached the precepts of the Bible, but also added slivers of Eastern mysticism. He made his first big splash in Oklahoma City. There, he made a small name for himself by broadcasting his message over the radio in the evenings. It was through these broadcasts that he met 21-year-old Geneva Webster, the daughter of an oil man. There was something about her that 25-year-old Penkovic couldn't get out of his head. Soon after meeting, they began to date. Not much is known about their courtship, but they married after only a few short months on February 1st, 1937. It appears that Geneva, who sometimes went by Lucille, knew that Penkovic's background was fabricated. But it was clear she loved him anyway. He was not wealthy, but he was different from every boy in Oklahoma City. When he resumed his travels all over the country, she followed. During his lecture tours, Penkovic operated like a traveling salesman and was fast and loose with facts. He never stayed too long in one place, often in different towns every week. Throughout the late 1930s, he mostly stayed in the Midwest and the South. He didn't really seem to care if anyone came to his lectures. He just liked speaking and promising hope to those who felt lost during the Depression. Everything was looking up for him. He had shed his criminal past, forged a new path in the world, and soon learned Geneva was expecting their first child. In late 1937, his wife gave birth to a son they named Von Kristna. With some practice, Penkovic started to attract media attention in every town he visited. He became the subject of countless local stories. He looked like he came from some fairy tale faraway land and gave lectures entitled The Abandonment of Fear, Jealousy, and Superstition. The whole package he offered was enticing to those who felt adrift as the nation changed quickly around them. Reporters were attracted to him because of his charisma and strange appearance. He let his hair and beard grow long to give off a sense of mystery and wisdom. And Dr. Penkovic was always willing to give an interview. He gave the papers an easy hook, and reporters sensationalized his traits as much as they could. This was most evident in September of 1938, when Penkovic arrived in Louisville, Kentucky, for the yearly state fair. Instead of simply giving a lecture as usual, he told the townspeople that he was going to perform a death-defying stunt. Penkovic claimed to have performed such a stunt once before in San Diego, but no records exist to support his claim. He often made statements like this that he knew would be incredibly hard to verify, but he presented himself as a doctor, a man of science, so people were likely to simply take him at his word. Penkovic's grand plan for the Kentucky State Fair was to seal himself inside a glass box for a week without any food and only allow himself a single glass of water a day. He said he wanted to prove that one's mind was stronger than the physical demands put on the body. He claimed to have gotten the medical approval of 12 separate doctors who would monitor his progress throughout. The box would be the size of a room and would even include air conditioning. He wanted to be monitored every few hours so the data could be used for science. 
However, before he was set to go through with it, State Health Commissioner Dr. A.T. McCormick stepped in. He did not believe the act was appropriate for an event that was more focused on family fun. He said the stunt was fake, pure and simple, and dangerous to Penkovic's health. Using what he had learned over the past two years, Penkovic turned the rejection into a media opportunity. He made sure the denial was covered in the local papers. He wanted to be painted as a daring man of the new age who was being stifled by those in power. Penkovic continued to pop in and out of towns until early 1939, when at the age of 28, it appears he settled down. He, his wife, and their two-year-old child moved into a small house in San Bernardino, California. The house became the new base of operations for the family business. Penkovic, like always, stayed busy. He continued to give lectures locally and became active in politics. While his message typically focused on religion and psychology, Penkovic also became involved in a local Young Democrats organization. Eventually, he was voted in as financial chair of the group. By this time, he claimed that he had given lectures in over 27 states. Based on his experiences traveling, he believed there was a deep divide in the country over the upcoming 1940 election. People in the country were split on the U.S. inaction in World War II and term limits. Penkovic was a stern supporter of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, whom he thought should run for a third term in office. Penkovic was also obsessed with communism and seized any opportunity to speak out against its evils. He considered Roosevelt to be the best chance the United States had to fight the Reds. He said... I'm convinced that 1940 will find Americans forced to choose between Franklin D. Roosevelt and the appalling alternative of fascism or communism. After the 1940 election and Roosevelt's victory, Penkovic decided his family's time in San Bernardino was over. It seemed no matter where he lived, he became restless. The small family once again went on the move, traveling first to Florida and then around the rest of the country. Penkovic went back to his routine of popping up in cities, only to disappear a few days later. The only records of his time in these small towns were the newspapers, who still couldn't get enough of him or his oddities. They often focused most on his strange appearance, but Penkovic took advantage of the publicity and used it to hook in people who were actually interested in paying to hear his message. It was all mildly amusing, until people started to take him seriously. The more he was reported on, the larger his rapport with the community got, and the more legitimate he seemed. He had made the rounds so many times that when he came back through town, people remembered him. Some paid for his lectures, and others donated money to him. He soon had enough money to hire a secretary, Ruth Bitzel, who traveled with the family and helped to schedule their lodgings and speaking appearances. Ruth became a permanent fixture in their lives over the next few years as the Penkovics crisscrossed the United States. The next few years were busy. In 1941, 30-year-old Penkovic and his family returned to San Bernardino, California. By this time, they'd welcomed a daughter to the family as well, LaVita. When Penkovic wasn't on the road giving lectures, he was a timekeeper at the local shipyards. He thought of it as a part-time job, only there when he needed it. 
But one day on the road in Phoenix, Arizona, Pankovic realized the turnout to his lectures was starting to diminish. He needed to update his hook. Instead of a doctor, a man of science, he started to advertise that he was a prophet who knew the future of Western civilization. He claimed to know what was going to happen on a global scale. But it was clear that even with these changes, he wasn't making enough from his lectures to completely fund his travels. He relied more on his work as a timekeeper at the docks, but Penkovic didn't feel whole unless he was on the road. His restless nature got the best of him, and his increasingly tired family was forced to follow. They left California and set out north on the grandest adventure of their lives. Up next, Penkovic's persona becomes even more radical. Now back to the story. From 1936 to 1941, Francis Pankovic traveled all over the United States, claiming to be a doctor and philosopher. He gave lectures that combined psychology, philosophy, and theology. However, his credentials were all fabricated, and he was having more and more trouble finding an audience for his talks. In 1941, he set out to chase the publicity opportunity of a lifetime. That summer, Penkovic, his wife, their two children, and their secretary, Ruth, found themselves thousands of miles away from their home in California. After a long voyage, they reached a small town in British Columbia. But for Penkovic, the journey was just beginning. His goal was to be the first white family to trek all the way to Skagway in Alaska along the old 1898 gold mining trail. It was roughly 1,000 miles long and went through some of the most difficult terrain in the country. The trip was audacious, reckless, and completely out of left field. Penkovic's love of travel now bordered on obsession. In his time, he might have been diagnosed with the historical psychological condition called dromomania, defined as an exaggerated desire to wander. While the term has fallen into disuse, there are still cases today of a so-called addiction to traveling. In an interview with Condé Nast Traveler, Dr. Michael Bryan, a social psychologist, said, Well, once you realize that the experience of travel is extremely rewarding and unlike anything else, the more you want to keep doing it. Like anything, if you let it overwhelm you, it can have serious effects on other aspects of your life. While something like a travel addiction might explain Penkovic's desire to take the trip, he genuinely believed the journey would gain him publicity. The old mining trail was already the subject of intense public interest because of the proposed Pan-American Highway that would follow its route. Pankovic believed this would help him cash in on the fad and get his name out there. Pankovic set out with his family on the publicity stunt. No automobile could make the rugged journey, so they had to take a horse-pack train over the mountains and through the harsh terrain. Within the first 44 days, they had covered around 500 miles, but it was grueling work. They had nearly run out of food by the time they set foot in the small outpost town of Telegraph Creek, about halfway to their destination. They had been through hell. They had crossed old bridges, lost a horse, and had nearly died. They sent a request to the U.S. government for more supplies, but were ignored. 
Canadian authorities told the party that they would not allow them to go any farther into Canada, as the conditions were dangerous and they were not prepared. They were instead sent west, back over the border to the United States, where they caught a ferry that took them back down south. In late September, fresh off the failure, the family moved to San Francisco. Pankovic was exhausted, but he was also hopeful. When he was interviewed by a local paper, he stated his desire to one day get a book published about his family's dangerous journey. Unfortunately, the one big headline he had been searching for never came. The entire ordeal was soon completely forgotten, and things were about to get even worse. By December 1941, his family was back on the road, as his wife Geneva, his four-year-old son, two-year-old daughter, and their assistant Ruth made their way through New Mexico on their way to Dallas, Texas. They were involved in a head-on collision on Highway 80, just a few miles east of Las Cruces. It was a horrific crash that left five people injured. Penkovic was thought to have a broken back. His wife Geneva broke her right leg, and their young son, Von Krisna, also broke his leg. Only Penkovic's assistant, Ruth, and his daughter, Levita, were spared from injury. The family spent the next couple of days in the small five-bed McBride Hospital, They had crossed several hundred miles through the rugged terrain of the Pacific Northwest, only to be injured on a paved highway in New Mexico. Never one to pass up a media opportunity, Penkovic made himself available to the local paper, who wanted to interview the eccentric lecturer about the incident. But his wife Geneva was reaching her breaking point. She had followed her husband all over the country, going from state to state. For what? Geneva had plenty of time to think about her commitment to Penkovic while she recovered in the hospital. Despite her sacrifices, they still didn't have a lot of money. This past year, she and her children had been put in countless perilous situations. When the family finally made its way back to the Bay Area in the last week of 1941, she made up her mind and filed for divorce. The life on the road, the ego, the time, it was all beyond the pale. She cared too much for her children to continue to follow Pankovic, who still wasn't showing any signs of slowing down. Geneva was granted custody in the beginning of 1942 and left Pankovic behind. However, the family's trusty assistant, Ruth, stood by him. They had gotten extremely close over the past couple of years, and shortly after the divorce, they formally became a couple. Pankovic and Ruth moved to Salt Lake City, Utah, and were married in 1946. He set up a new base of operations in Utah, but business was terrible. The lecture circuit had completely dried up. After the war, no one was interested in his ideas. For her part, Ruth wasn't deterred. She was committed to Pankovic and appeared to have either been extremely dedicated to the act or fully believed in his teachings. She was in it until the end. But Pankovic knew it was time for another radical change. Dr. P.H. Pankovic just wasn't interesting enough. The environment of the United States had changed after the war. The Depression was over, and what had captivated people before the war no longer held their interest. 
on June 23, 1946, Dr. P. H. Penkovic arrived at a sparsely attended gymnasium in Provo, Utah, and gave his final lecture. Four days later, on June 30, 1946, a new man gave a lecture at a hotel 80 miles away. He looked and sounded just like Penkovic, but he had an even more bizarre backstory. His name was Krishna Venta. Rather than claiming to be a Russian national who spent three years in India, now Venta said he was a master from the mythical Meta Verda Valley in India. He told his audience he was a great prophet who had accurately predicted the future since 1927 when he began touring the United States. To distinguish himself from his own past, Venta started wearing robes and stopped wearing shoes. Within a few months, his transformation was complete. The farther he got from Utah, the less likely his past would be challenged. In 1947, he ventured from Boston to Florida to Los Angeles, claiming to be a philosopher for the atomic age. His message was largely similar to what he was preaching before, only this time he was more explicit in combining teachings from Christianity and Hinduism. The main tenets of his talks were the Ten Commandments, but he also emphasized meditation and introduced ideas about reincarnation. He combined these theological principles with philosophy and psychology, too, crafting a confusing mix of ideas that conflicted and jumbled together. But most of all, he preached that everyone should love each other. He claimed the world would face dire consequences if they didn't. He began preaching apocalyptic messages of Russian attacks and World War III. His doomsday prophecies appealed to those who were swept up in the fears of the atomic age. They were looking for any way to avoid the nuclear fallout they thought was coming. He combined just enough pseudoscience with science fiction to convince these people of his visions for the future. Though he had a new name and a new shtick, the man who claimed to be Venta was up to his old ways. He ambled into town, created a mild media stir, and then left before anyone could really look into his past. However, his gimmick was more markedly successful this time around. He started to gain dozens of followers who traveled with him. It was also more financially lucrative. This time around, he charged a fee for everyone who wanted to attend his lectures. They could enter the lecture hall for a minimum 50-cent donation made out to him. Venta was encouraged to lean even further into the strange. He soon told those at his lectures that he had perfect control of his mind, and he could prove it, because while he was from India, he spoke without a hint of an accent. As time went on, Venta became even more bold with his message and his philosophy. He began to claim that he was over 2,000 years old and arrived on this planet at the same time as Adam and Eve in spaceships. He said his spaceship had crashed and was buried at the base of Mount Everest. It was perfectly preserved, but was obscured by ice and a never-breaking bank of fog. He also claimed that many expeditions and aviators had seen the reflection of the sun on the metallic hull of the spaceship, but could never successfully locate it upon return. 
Over the next two years, he amassed dozens of followers. With each success, he grew bolder and eventually preached that he was the perfect embodiment of Christ. He told all those who wanted to follow him to refer to him as the voice. He also claimed to know when World War III was going to happen and what needed to be done to survive. He believed that because of discrimination in the United States, there would be a race war. He said this would weaken the U.S. for an attack by the Russians, who would then conquer the country. Venta claimed that by then, he would have amassed 144,000 followers. All of them would be safe in a sacred valley. There they would wait until the fighting was over. Afterward, according to Venta, he and his followers would emerge to preach the word of God to everyone who survived. They would overthrow the godless communists through the democratic principle of freedom of religion. Venta said their words would spread across the occupied United States and cause an uprising. Venta may have known that what he was teaching was crazy, but it was working. His new persona attracted nearly 100 dedicated followers by the end of 1948. He told them that in order to be a true acolyte, they had to give over all of their worldly possessions to him and his newly named organization, WKFL Fountain of the World. WKFL stood for Wisdom, Knowledge, Faith, and Love. At 37 years old, he had enough money to fly to Europe to continue spreading his message and gaining followers. He wanted to speak with the Pope at the Vatican, but when he arrived, flanked by his wife and a handful of followers, the Swiss guards laughed and thought it was an April Fool's prank. When a local paper interviewed him afterward, he said he was surprised that the Pope didn't have time to see him. He claimed to remember meeting another pope hundreds of years ago, who was much more welcoming. In 1949, after his trip to Europe, he and his wife, Sister Ruth, moved back to Southern California. He summoned his followers to gather and meet him there. Nearly 200 members came. By now, they were calling him the Master. Venta knew that they needed a secluded place where they could be shielded from the growing media scrutiny. It had to resemble the mythical valley that he preached about to his followers, the Promised Land. Venta and Ruth searched until they found Box Canyon in Chatsworth, California. It was perfect, close enough to a large city to help recruit new members, but just far enough away that they could do whatever they wanted. The couple bought roughly 20 acres and got to work on building their Eden. They put up a sign that read, Ye who enter here, enter in upon holy ground. After decades of searching across the country under three different identities, Venta was finally home. It was a place of his own making, a place where he belonged. However, it wouldn't last forever, and the master was destined for a violent end. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with more about Krishnaventa and the Fountain of the World. We'll take a deeper look at the cult's practices and how its leader met his end. 
You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals, like Cults, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Cults on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Cults was written by Robert Tyler Walker with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.